darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Then just dropping down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Just uh, these verses and uh, let's pray and ask God to help us as we think about them. Lord, thank you for these uh, words that we've read about our Savior, that he was, uh, he, that he was uh, with God and that he was God, separate from and yet one in essence uh, with God. And uh, we stand uh, in awe of that. That's a mystery to us, the Trinity, that there would be unity and trinity and trinity and unity and yet we uh, worship you and all of your greatness and glory and we thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and we thank you for the experience of those who encountered him and the opportunity that we have to learn from what they have recorded and told us about their experience of the one who became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. And as we think about John's recollections uh, here in the beginning of his gospel, we pray that you will help us uh, and encourage us and inspire us and enlarge our vision, we pray of Christ. And we ask this in the Savior's name. Amen. Well, everyone has got somebody that they admire, a hero, if you will. Sometimes I, people model their appearance on their heroes or uh, they model even their interests and sometimes even their behavior on uh, that, on, on those of their heroes. And uh, if you've got a family of children, um, which Elaine and I have, it is interesting to watch the things that influence them, the people that influence them and the kind of impact that those influence, influencers have um, upon them. So every young car driver wants to be a Lewis Hamilton. Every young tennis player, at least in Scotland, wants to be an Andy Murray. Every young preacher, it seems, wants to be an Alistair Begg, if not, then perhaps a John Piper. And it is important for us as Christians to ask ourselves, well, who then are we taking our cue from and who are the influencers in our lives? And surely as Christians, we look first and foremost to Jesus. He's the one. He is the one that should be influencing us and making an impression upon us. He is the one that we should be emulating and the one that we should be reflecting. But what then is Jesus like? That's the question that we need to ask. What is Jesus like? This one that we are to emulate, this one that we are to be like, this one that the Father is conforming us into the image of, what, what then is Jesus like? And, and that's a big topic of discussion. But here, as John writes his gospel, probably at the end of the first century and probably towards the end of his life. It's a much more reflective gospel than the other gospels. 
because he's writing in as he reflects on Jesus. And uh, what he tells us here as he thinks back to his experience of Jesus is that he says to us that he was full of glory. He was full of grace and he was full of truth. Those are the three things that stand out uh, to him as he reflects on this one who was the word and became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He says he was full of glory, he was full of grace, and he was full of uh, truth. And, uh, you know, we may be poor creatures, we may be poor communicators. I once uh, spoke at a church and a young boy after the evenings or before the evening service was looking at me and he said to me, when, when I get old, I'm going to give you money. And I said, why would you want to give me money? And he said, because my parents said that you were the poorest preacher that they've ever heard. <laughs> um, we may be poor preachers, uh, but we have a great savior, a glorious savior. And uh, he is the one that we want to think about. He's the one that we want to emulate. And uh, he's the one that John tells us about. So I, I want to just camp on those three statements that John made about Jesus in verse 14. First thing he says, as he reflects on Jesus is, he says, when I think about Jesus, I think about beholding or looking, gazing, if you will, upon his glory. Now, I wonder if you've ever thought about what the father thought when he gazed upon the son in the arms of a teenaged mother. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. The father knew that the son uh, enjoyed pre-incarnate glory with him in heaven. So in John 17 verse 5, Jesus is praying what's called his high priestly prayer with his disciples on the night that he's betrayed and on the night before he goes out to be crucified. And in John 17 verse 5, he says, Now, Father, as he anticipates the, the cross and the resurrection, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. With the glory I had with you before the world began. Began. So as the father gazes on the son, he knows that he is the second member of the Godhead. He understood that the son dwelt in light which was unapproachable. He knew that the son was worshipped by angels and that his presence was flooded with praise. The father knows that the son is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He knows that one day every knee will bow and acknowledge his lordship. So as the father gazes at the son in the arms of an infant, a teenage mother, as, he, as the father looks at the son, what he sees is one who has veiled his glory. He will be recognized as nothing more than Mary's son or, and her carpenter husband. And as the father looks at the son, he sees someone who has veiled his glory in humility. But as John reflects on Jesus, he says, I beheld his glory. I saw something of the glory of Jesus. Now, when we think about the glory of Jesus, there are several dimensions to it, aren't there? There are at least a couple of dimensions to the glory of Jesus. When the Bible talks about the glory of Jesus, in one place it talks about the glory of his might. 
And so when it talks about the glory of Jesus, it's talking about his infinite, glorious, majestic nature. When it thinks of, about, uh, when it talks about the glory of uh, Jesus, it's really thinking about his absolute righteousness. You know the verse as well as I do, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Well, if, if Jesus was full of glory, he didn't come short of the glory of God. He met the mark, he didn't fall short. We have not given God the honor that he deserves by obeying him and serving him, but Jesus demonstrates God's excellence at every turn. And John says to us, I saw his glory, his purity and his holiness. In fact, he says to us, Jesus was holiness personified. Says John to us, my brother James and I, we were naturally inclined towards evil, but he was naturally inclined towards righteousness. Never was there guile found in his mouth. He was sinless and spotless. As John remembers Jesus then, he remembers him as the epitome of goodness. And you might be hearing people have let you down. Um, you thought that they were one thing and it turned out that they were something altogether different. But here is someone who will never let you down because he is the fountain of all goodness. His goodness is more dependable than anything else that you know. When we think about God's glory, the other thing that we think about, not just his infinite nature, in every capacity, he is infinite in might, he is infinite in holiness. And so when we speak about glory, we're thinking about that dimension to Christ. But the other thing that we naturally think about when we think about God's glory is the brightness that surrounds the presence of God. It's the brightness that Moses saw. Remember when Moses uh, was on the mountain uh, and God was speaking to him and giving him the Ten Commandments. And then when he came down off the mountain, his face glowed because he had been in the presence of God. And his face reflected the glory of God. And when we think about God's glory, we think about that brightness, the physical manifestation of his presence, which is his brightness. And uh, you can remember uh, the story of Moses. Remember the story of Moses and he said to God, and God's been speaking to him on the mountain. And then he says to God, show me your glory. God hides him in the cleft of a rock and God's glory passes by. The brightness and the, the power of God passes him by. And I think when John says, listen, when I think about Jesus, I think about someone in whom I saw glory. I think about a couple of things. I, I, I think he must have been thinking about the transfiguration, don't you think? The night when Jesus' humanity began to break out of its human prison and, uh, and, 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 and his face began to shine like the sun and his clothes looked as if they had been bleached whiter than anyone could bleach them. And something of the glory of Jesus began to manifest itself on the Mount of Transfiguration, the nature the, the, the glory that he enjoyed with the Father from all eternity begins to reveal itself. I think that's one event that he must have been thinking about. I think the other events that he would be thinking about would be events like 
The night that Jesus walked on the water and came out to meet the disciples as they were in that boat. Remember that night? And it says in Mark's gospel, Mark 6, 48 and 49, that it appeared as, well, at first they thought it was a ghost. Now, why did they think it was a ghost? Because of it's the nature of the appearance. And, and perhaps, just perhaps, there was something of the glory of God visible as he walked on the water. I don't know. But it does say in, in Mark's gospel that it appeared as if Jesus was going to pass them by. And that reminds you of the Old Testament stories when the glory of God passed by Moses. And the glory of God passed by Elijah as he's hidden in that tomb on Mount Horeb, feeling sorry for himself, depressed. And, and, and uh, God passes by the, to the, the, the mouth of the cave that he's in. So you have this sense that the glory of God is passing them by the disciples. And you get this sense that perhaps that night they caught a glimpse of the glory of God in Jesus. I mean, the other event I was thinking about, and, you know, when they stood in John chapter 11 with Jesus outside the grave of a man who'd been dead for four days, and he called the man to come forth. And out, out of the grave or out of the, the tomb, this man comes shuffling, still dressed in his, in his burial suit. Now, as you watch that unfold and as you stand beside Jesus, surely there would be a sense that you are in the presence of something remarkable, something glorious, something, somebody with infinite power. So when John thinks about Jesus, he says to us, listen, when I think about Jesus, I don't think so much about humility. I think about glory. And there were one or, two, one or two occasions during the course of his life where I caught a glimpse of the glory of God in Jesus. We have a glorious Savior. And, and that's what I want you to take from this. He is the incomparable Christ. I may have told you about the young man who came uh, right up to me on Princess Street one day and said, why Jesus? Why not this prophet or that prophet? Why Jesus? This is why Jesus, because he is the incomparable Christ. The second thing that John tells us is, not only do I think about glory, but I think about grace. Now, grace is usually defined as God's unmerited favor. And I think that's fine insofar as it goes, we're completely unable to earn God's favor. No matter what we do, it will be tinted and flavored, if you will, by selfish ambition and by sinful motivation. So we can't earn God's favor. Our good stuff never outweighs our bad stuff. So it's fine to define God's grace as God's unmerited favor. But I think not only is it God's unmerited favor, but it's God's undeserved favor. We have no right to expect any favor from God. We forfeited every right to expect God's grace or God's favor. When, when we fell in the Garden of Eden, we turned our back on God. We violated the commands of a loving creator and we walked away from God. We have no right to expect anything by way of favor from God. If God had washed his hands of us as a race of people, no one could have pointed any accusing finger towards him. 
yet he reaches out to us in grace by sending his son into this world to manifest something of his glory and uh, enact this great mission of redemption. And Jesus is the grace of God personified. And John says to us, when I think about Jesus, I think about grace. I saw it firsthand when Jesus walked past me and my brother James and called us to follow him, to leave our fishing boats and our fishing nets and to become his disciples. We were nobodies. We had never been to a rabbinical school. But Jesus said to us, come and follow me. Become one of my closest friends and invest the rest of your lives in the work of my kingdom. John says to us, I saw the grace of God in Jesus when he sat down on the wall of a well outside the village of Sychar and spoke to a Samaritan woman who had had five husbands and now had a live-in lover and who probably came in the middle of the day because she was embarrassed about meeting others and didn't want them asking her too many questions. But Jesus sat down with her and treated her as if she was the most important person in the world and transformed her empty life so much so that she left her empty water pots behind her and went back into her village, a picture of her leaving her empty life. He said, come and meet a man who tell, told me everything that I have ever done. Could this be the Christ? This is the Christ. I saw the grace of God in Jesus when he sat down with that woman. I think John would say to us, I saw the grace of God in Jesus in the way that he treated lepers. People ostracized from their community, living in isolation from their family and friends, ringing a bell and shouting, unclean, unclean, making sure that they didn't come into contact with anyone. But somehow they felt that they could approach Jesus. One of them came and said to Jesus, if you are willing, master, you could make me clean. No doubt about the ability of Jesus to heal him. The question is, would Jesus be interested in helping him? If you're willing, you could make me clean, he says. Jesus says, I am willing. And he touched him, probably the first person to have touched him for maybe a decade, maybe longer. Who knows how long it has been since someone touched him. Jesus touched him and made him well. And somehow lepers, people with leprosy, with deformed limbs and diseased and infected limbs, people that stayed away from everyone, somehow they felt that they could treat, uh, approach Jesus and that he would treat them with tenderness and kindness. John says, when I think about Jesus, I think about grace. I remember the day we walked into Jericho and a blind man was sitting by the side of the road and he wanted to know who was going to pass by. And when he heard it was Jesus, he began to shout, for all he was worth, son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody around him was saying, keep quiet. Jesus would never be interested in somebody like you. You're making a nuisance of yourself. Keep quiet. But little did they know that Jesus would go over and heal him because Jesus was full of grace. John would say to us, I, I think I saw the grace of God in Jesus 
in the way he treated the woman caught in adultery, actually caught in adultery. They wanted to stone her and she was guilty. And Jesus said to the crowd, let those who are without sin cast the first stone. I watched as they left one by one and Jesus said to her, where are they that condemn you? Then neither do I. I saw the grace of God in Jesus and the way that he treated these individuals. I, I, I think John would say to us, if we were to press him and say, well, where did you see the grace of God in Jesus? I think he might say to us, the night he took a basin and a towel, got down on his knees and washed our smelly, grimy feet because we were so busy fighting about which of us was the most important. I think I saw the grace of God in Jesus the night he washed Judas's feet, who had already agreed to betray him for 30 pieces of silver, yet Jesus treated him as he treated the rest of us. I saw the grace of God in Jesus in the way that he treated Thomas. Even after the resurrection, Thomas refused to believe. And Jesus came in tenderness and said, do you need proof, Thomas? Come and put your finger in the nail prints and your hand into the spear wood in my side. I think what John is saying to us is, when I think of Jesus, I think of grace. Now, I've been to a lot of places and I've met a lot of people over the course of my life all over the world. I've met Christians. And it strikes me that we do lack grace. The way we treat each other, never mind the world at large, often lacks grace. And we're so different from the one that we serve. But Jesus is full of grace and he's full of compassion. Christians are largely known for what they are against. And I know that we're against certain things, but Jesus was known for grace. He was known for what he was for. He was interested in the broken and messed up. And he was interested in reaching out to them in grace. The third thing that I want you to think about as we think about Jesus is, is this. John says he was full of glory. He was full of grace. And finally, John says to us, he was full of truth. Now, I think at a very basic elementary level, what John means is that Jesus was impeccably honest. When you live with someone and talk to them and listen to them and share your life with them, when you see them under pressure, you get to know them a little bit. Well, John lived with Jesus for three years. And as he reflects on Jesus, he says he was truth. He was impeccably honest. He was full of truth. There was never, ever any question mark about anything that he said. We are his people and we should reflect his truthfulness. We want people to see a truth-telling, promise-keeping savior in us and through us. But I think that John means more than that when he says that he is the truth. I think what he means is that he is the climax of revelation. I think what John means is that Jesus is, if you will, 
He is the, the high point of what God wants to reveal to us. So in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. At different times and in various ways in the past, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Jesus, you see, is the climax of revelation. Because in the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In the epistles, in the book of Acts, he is proclaimed. In the epistles, he is explained. And in the book of Revelation, he is anticipated. The whole thing is about him. He is the climax of revelation. And when John reflects on Jesus, he says to us, he was the truth. He revealed everything to us that God wanted us to know. He revealed the truth about the Father. When you see the Son take little children on his knees and bless them, you see the Father's love for children. When you see the Son minister to the broken and the wounded and talking to them as if they are the most important people on the earth, there you see the love of the Father for those who are wounded because he came to reveal the truth, the truth about the Father. When you see him drive out the money changers out of the temple, you see firsthand the Father's hatred of evil and sin and corruption. When you see Jesus hanging on the cross, reaching tenderly for his mother, you see God's love for parents. He reveals the truth about the Father. He reveals the truth about ourselves. You read the Sermon on the Mount and you realize that Jesus is the master psychologist. He understands us in a way that no one else understands us. Take the, take, you, he, he sort of asks us, what in the world do we think we're playing at in the Sermon on the Mount? Trying to take the speck or the moat out of someone else's eye when there is a plank sticking out of our own. There's a master psychologist. He shows us the truth about ourselves. And he reveals the truth about heaven and how to get there. He tells us that we must repent and become like little children. He tells us that we must be born again by his grace. He tells us how to get to heaven. He tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And John says, when I think about Jesus, I think about someone who was the truth, the truth. And when we interact with people, Surely we want people to know this Jesus who is the truth. But here's the thing about Jesus as well. And with this, I'm going to uh, wrap up. Not only that, but um, not only was he the climax of revelation, but he spoke the, the truth to people. Remember his words to the Pharisees? You brood of vipers, he said to them. How can you who are evil say anything that's good? There's truth. Or the woman caught in adultery, which I mentioned a little earlier, he said to her, then neither do I go and sin no more. There's truth. Or the rich young ruler, go and sell everything that you have. We would say to the rich young ruler, you know, Jesus doesn't want to take anything from you. Jesus just wants to give you forgiveness and righteousness. But Jesus said to him, go and sell everything that you have because money is your God. And then give it to the poor and then come and follow me. Truth. 
when you see him converse with his own disciples and listen to him in a place called Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, he's there with his disciples on retreat and he says, who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're a prophet. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And uh, he, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus then goes on to tell them, yes, I am. But let me tell you what kind of Messiah I'm going to be. The son of man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and the elders. And then Peter began to rebuke him and said, we don't want to hear about a Messiah that suffers. That's not the kind of Messiah that we want. We want a victorious, conquering Messiah. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. There's truth. See, we would have, we would have waffled around that for like two weeks, but Jesus just spoke the truth to Peter. You're allowing yourself to say what the devil wants to be said here. We need to speak the truth, don't we? So listen. What has been the point of this message and, and why have I drawn your attention to Jesus? Well, here's the reason. He's the one that we need to take our cue from. He is the influencer that needs to shape our lives. And as we think about Jesus, all of us need to ask ourselves the question, do we emulate him in any way? Do we communicate something of his glory to others in the way that we live? Do we demonstrate something of his grace, the grace of God in the way that we interact with others? And finally, do we speak his truth? Or are we so mealy-mouthed that we're afraid to say what needs to be said? John says to us, when I think about Jesus, you know what I think about? I think about someone who was full of glory, incomparable. He was full of grace and he was full of truth. And may God help us in the days and weeks to come to uh, display to a lost and broken world something of the loveliness of this Jesus. And may God help us to allow him to be our influencer, the way we think and the way that we behave. Thank you so much for your kind attention. Come ahead.